You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 127, the fourth one for this month of July. We are talking today about the 1993 Mrs. Doubtfire, starring Robin Williams, Sally Field, Pierce Brosnan, Harvey Firestein, Lisa Jacob, Matthew Lawrence, Mara Wilson, and Martin Mull. This is directed by Christopher Columbus, who did all of the Harry Potter films in 01, 02, and 04, and The Help in 2000, 2011. The DP for this film is Donald McAlpine, and he did Predator in 87, Romeo and Juliet in 96, and Moulin Rouge in 2001. It was filmed all around the Bay Area in Danville, Redwood City, Oakland, Berkeley, at Candlestick Park, and San Francisco. The writer for this film, there's three listed, Anne Fine, Randy Mayhem Singer, and Leslie Dixon, who also is, I believe, producer on Overboard that we've talked about. Mm. The film is brought to you by 20th Century Fox, and the synopsis for this film is, after a bitter divorce, an actor disguises himself as a female housekeeper to spend time with his children held in custody by his former wife. The tagline is, she will rock your world. That is not the greatest tagline. No, there's another one. She makes dinner. She does windows. She reads bedtime stories. She's a blessing in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> Christopher Columbus actually sold quite a few scripts to Steven Spielberg that became films. It became Gremlins, The Goonies. But his career really didn't take off until the major success of Home Alone which allowed Columbus to move on to more successful projects like Mrs. Doubtfire and then his the first two Harry Potter films. I'm very curious what people in general, uh, and specifically you, think about the plausibility of this film. Because this is very much a by-the-premise, by-the-bit. This film only works if we, as the viewer, believe that Robin Williams' character of Daniel Hillard could impersonate this woman such that the family he has lived with for 10 or more years, this woman that he was married to, would not detect it. And I'm not willing to do this, but if we had access to Harvey Firestein's level of makeup and you put me in that outfit, I don't know that you wouldn't recognize I agree. I think we've gotten too, I think our eyes are too used to, I don't know. I just, I think you're right. I think there's an authenticity that we would, or an inauthenticity that we would pick up on. I think you're right. We have to buy the premise that nobody would be the wiser that this was at least someone. I don't know if if you would immediately go, oh, it's dad. But it's definitely you would be like, this person is in a disguise. Right. And they do establish early on that he's a talented voice actor. But voice acting is very different than acting acting, right? And I personally think that that the family would say, ah, oh, this dad a drag. But 
given that, if you buy that premise, right, the rest of the film follows fairly naturally from that, the, the, the tension. And we talked about one of the things that they set up an important plot point because it's the big reveal of him being in costume is he has this a dinner at the same point in time at the same restaurant. So he has to be Doubtfire and Daniel at the same point. And you brought up that you would just say, as Mrs. Doubtfire, I already had plans. And that would be the end of that. Mm-hmm. Now, it would have been weird if the family comes into that restaurant and they see their dad having a business dinner, but he's having a business dinner. So right. it'd be like, oh, okay. And I think we're supposed, the reason that he doesn't do that is he probably is trying to block, let's say, Pierce Brosnan from getting closer to his soon-to-be or ex-wife. So that definitely raises the stakes why maybe as Doubtfire he didn't want to not go to the dinner. And he definitely caused uh, an issue that night that that caused, that prevented Miranda, Miranda, I think, um, from going out with with Stu that night. So early in the do you film, wanna, I, I just, why don't you kick us off with your pickup line, and then we'll get into more of the film. Figaro. <laughs> uh, he uh, it also doesn't support my uh, well, my theory, but he sings Figaro many times actually in a row. And so much so that I was like, wow, he had to learn some Italian, I think, to he do that He had to scene. learn that, that song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was and, impressed. Yeah, he was able to sing it as well uh, very quickly and, yeah, in a different language. So that was the one kind of nitpick I had a little bit with that was he's doing the voices for two characters, right? Like the bird and the cat. And as far as I understand, they record each character independently. Not only that, I think they would just get two actors, unless it was like a very, very, very indie. But that didn't. Yeah, it didn't seem didn't to be. With um, uh, it, but uh, from the category of couldn't be made today, both uh, the director and every sound technician were smoking like chimneys. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of ridiculous how much that cigarette was for smoking. A gag, though, yeah, it was for the gag, absolutely. But maybe I mean, people who record probably could. You know, back in the day when you could smoke indoors, right? That there probably a lot of people were lighting up. And there's a plot point where at the restaurant they talk about smoking versus non-smoking, which it was a very brief moment in time in California when they went from you could smoke any place you wanted to now you can't smoke any place, right? All restaurants are non-smoking, so there's this window where there were two sections, and we used to laugh that you'd be on the opposite side of a planter. And the smoke did not know it was not supposed to cross into non-smoking. Right. <laughs> this was definitely not my first time watching this. I don't think for you either. No, no. And so watching it again, what did you think of, I guess, let's start with story. I actually, I I like the story and the way it's written. We, we early on see this argument between Daniel and Miranda and I actually was confused. They weren't divorced at the beginning of the film, but that argument, I think, realistically allows a chance of exposition to tell us kind of what is going on with those two characters, right? And there's a great line in there where it establishes his journey, where Miranda says, Daniel, please don't joke. 
And as a person whose instinct is to make jokes at all times, especially when things are awkward, I totally get that, right? That was kind of, and we see that with the, the party and the animals, that he is not being responsible, right? He's just stuck in the child's mode. And you feel for Miranda, like, why would she want to raise four children, right? So you can kind of see that. And then this role of Doubtfire allows him not so much to, it's not about the gender, really. It's more about, it, it, it's this mask that he can put on that allows him to change, to decide to be a new person. Just like when you go off to college, nobody knows you. So you can be whoever you want to be. So when he put on the prosthetics and the wig, he could be anyone he wanted to be. He was no longer trapped in his own past history. And his reception from her. Like when he walked up, anytime he walked up to her house, she's now bringing all of the baggage from their past. And right. so, but Doubtfire, it was a whole new person. So it's kind of interesting though, but he traded some things because the, the son and the youngest daughter were immediately kind of suspicious, right? Now the older daughter was not happy with dad before, nor Doubtfire. She was very, and there, I thought it was cleverly written that when um, he quits the job in the studio, the director's like, actors. And then he does something at home and the oldest daughter goes, actors. <laughs> and so I thought that was, but again, that was realistic for a teen to to be much more uh, like she, she doesn't like that she has to kind of take care of the littles. And uh, so I felt like the, characterization of the family was really well done and and like with the kids we kind of want as a viewer want Miranda and Daniel to get back together mm -hmm. but the way the film resolves they don't and we're okay with it so I think it, it's that's a, a fine line to tread right to um, not have them get back together but still has an audience have us feel like things are okay mm -hmm. that there's not that 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 tension and so there's a little bit of kind of comic zaniness a couple times when he has to, you know, switch back and forth between the characters real quickly. And when it first, when I first saw it, that played much better than like, this was probably the third time because I know what's happening. And so, you know, you kind of, there's no suspense. Right. But I felt like that part was believable in the tone of the film and it allowed Daniel, the character to kind of find his bliss. He, by accidentally, you know, because he's drunk, he shows up as Doubtfire at the table when he doesn't intend to with his new boss. That allows him to get the show, which allows him to do all his funny voices and his childlike behavior and get paid for it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, it's neat that he, I'm getting teary. Yeah. That he, he gets to f back his way into that bliss yeah. because we see him as a sympathetic character who can't help himself. He's like a child. Right, right. Yeah. I think, and you know, that's why, of course, any kid would love a dad like that, like could totally get down on their level and hire, you know, the petting zoo to come and who would allow you right. to stand on the table while you dance and, you know, all that stuff. But as, yeah, I think you nailed it. I think as a wife that gets, that gets old pretty quick. And it's probably the thing that endeared him to her when they met, that he was so fun. Oh, sure. And, but, you know, there's a certain point when 
okay, the joking needs to stop. Well, <laughs> or at least uh, and so read the room. There's a point where he talks about when she went back to work or when she took that job, she became the corporate stiff that she always made fun of. And I guess that's okay if a person wanted to do that because she does appear to enjoy the work that she's doing, which I would call interior decorating, but mm-hmm. I I, that my, I don't want to sell that job short, whatever mm-hmm. she was doing. But she appears to enjoy it, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think, again, the, we've talked about in previous podcasts, Sally Field acting, but I think in this case, I really thought she did a good job of Miranda is flattered that Pierce Brosnan is interested. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, they have a history. Either they yeah. went to college together. Well, they or... obviously knew each other, and he felt like he, she was the one that got away. And I know that you mentioned that, that they, in the trivia that they either, during the pre-production writing or, or in the script or whatever, they made the Pierce Brosnan character less hateable, right? But I still don't like him. <laughs> And part of that is they kind of characterize him as a little too handsome. And and this is credit to Brosnan's acting because he, he, of course, brought he made that acting choice to bring a certain plasticity or artificiality to that character. Like we don't connect with him. And I think that's important that he did. He made that acting choice because we still need to, to connect with Daniel. So right, credit right. to Brosnan. So originally, the the film, I believe, as scripted, uh, it was much darker. They really wanted audiences to see the toll that divorce takes on the children. And so there's a bunch of deleted scenes on YouTube that I watched. I haven't, I haven't watched as many as I wanted to. We did a quick turnaround between our viewing and our recording, so I didn't have as much time to uh, research this film. But... The, there's one scene it is rough um, Miranda and Daniel are fighting and they're the they come up to a point where he says the kids love me more or maybe just the kids love me and she goes the kids love me and you look up and the kids are standing at the stairs and the oldest daughter says I hate you both <laughs> yeah I think that's pretty accurate <laughs> and there's some heart and then the two other they just look sad and you know, that they've just watched their parents fight and they just kind of sulk off. And then the two parents look like they, you know, they feel like shit. So (laughs) as you would, I, I, I think it's fascinating that you would even as filmmakers go down that road with Robin Williams. Right. And he's a good example of in his, his acting, he did do some serious films, but I just don't think that was, not that he couldn't do it, but he was just so known for his high energy, zany comedy mm-hmm. that, you know, I understand how an artist would want to do something different, but this film, it doesn't seem right. You know, if you had made it darker, if you have Robin Williams in the cast, yeah. right? And to that end, basically Chris would give him, you know, a few takes of the script and then he yeah. was allowed to improvise. And at times he would even use two or three cameras at the same time shooting. Because when you have Robin Williams and you don't really know where he's going to go or what he's <laughs> right. going to say. It's yeah. probably good for safety that you run more than one, more than one camera. And it's interesting because of course this is, we know this film. So we, when presented with this idea, we can't help but think of his performance as Mrs. Doubtfire. 
but it would be an interesting thought experiment too. Like, how would this have differed if you had cast a different actor in that role? And you know, just to be silly, like, what if it was like Liam Neeson, right? He would obviously have a much cool. different way approach to to the character of Doubtfire than, than Robin Williams did. And and so, I, I mean, I think this film works, and it's impossible for me to think of this film without Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. Right. It just is so, I think, iconically connected to him. Jim Carrey was in talks, I believe. I, I could be making that up because of reading so much trivia over the last <laughs> two and a half days. Yeah. But I believe, and, and I think that would just have been a way different movie, you know, like yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ace Ventura, right. <laughs> Doubtfire. Okay, now now I'm thinking of uh, Fluffy Iglesias, a totally different film. Right. Right. <laughs> The scene where he knocked off the prosthetic mask and the bus runs over it, that took him 50 takes to get that scene. And in reality, the prosthetic mask that was used in the film was just a prop. It actually was Robin's real makeup was made up of eight separate pieces to make him look like Doubtfire. And it took about four and a half hours each day to put the makeup on. Yeah, I've always wondered back before, you know, iPods and earbuds, what those poor actors were doing inside their skull for four and a half hours in the makeup chair, because we know that that's before you start filming. So they get their, like, oh, dark 30. Yeah, your call time is four hours before (laughs) everyone else is rolling out. And so it's early in the morning and you're in that chair and probably you're not supposed to fall asleep Mm -hmm. because you have to, you know, stay stationary and give some feedback. But what do you do for four hours? Yeah. Right. I mean, you review your lines, but then 10 minutes later, okay, now what? Yeah. So watching this, the editing or cinematography, was there anything that you noticed that you maybe didn't notice the first couple times you saw this movie? Lots of montages. You know I love me a montage. We had a Daniel doing impressions montage. We had several makeup montages. We had a mastering being Mrs. Doubtfire montage. It was amazing. One thing that just really caught my eye is they did fast motion photography in one scene. I think it was when he was was cleaning. Oh, I thought it was when he was changing. Oh, maybe it was changing. And... Gosh, you used to see that all the time, but we hardly ever see that anymore. I'm really curious kind of what Columbus, why he did that, because this movie is pretty long, right? I I think that's why he did it. It was um, because I made note of it. It was when he was changing back and forth in the restaurant, uh, which we've been to. Right. um, The restaurant restroom, because I think to take that bodysuit off that he was wearing would have taken a while. And so I think he just was like, this shot is too long as is. We have to speed it up. You know, mentioning that we've been there, uh, this uh, does remind me that listener Peter likes to visit places where movies are filmed famous locations. And so maybe when he's next in the Bay, he would like to go to Bridges. To Bridges. It's a great restaurant. I loved it. So so that was the, the, the first thing that, like I just noticed there were a lot of a lot of montages and then there's a fast motion, but there is also a nice slow dolly shot to reveal Manda Miranda not Manda 
at work. I th- I thought that was that was well done. I think it was um, shot pretty well. It di- the cinematography didn't get in the way. You know, it wasn't one of those films where you thought somebody was really gunning for stuff for the real. It was mm-hmm. um, well done, but you know, um, understated. Mm-hmm. I meant to look up the songs that are in the soundtrack, but like great songs in the soundtrack. I'm trying to remember of anything except the one, the jump around that he's playing with the, the party, well, which is the first time I heard that song. And so I always thought it was what? from the film. Oh, wow. Well, there's Dude Looks Like a Lady, which could oh, yeah, take we, us into our conversation that we... Yeah, well, well, you're, you're typing it. I will mention that I, I did pause for us to discuss the use of the Aerosmith song, Dude Looks Like a Lady, which of course is right on the nose because... Daniel Hillard is a dude, and he looks like a lady as Mrs. Doubtfire. See, it's right there. But I thought in today, when we are trying to be more sensitive toward trans people, uh, I was curious about that song. Would that uh, play well in 2023? And we looked at the lyrics, and the lyrics really are pretty, I would say, I wouldn't call them transphobic or anything. They're pretty straightforward. And I just remembered in the Aerosmith video that they were portraying like uh, S- Steven Tyler was was somehow duped by like a construction worker with long hair. And you mentioned that it was ironic because Steven Tyler had very long <laughs> hair and scarves and he had kind of a weird a look himself. Energy. Yeah, right? So, and maybe that's why that, that worked well. But yeah, okay, that was one of the songs, Do Looks Like a Lady. So I meant to do my homework, everybody, and I apologize. I will include two articles that I am going to read, but just didn't get it done in time for our recording. So the film was made into a musical, and when that was done, Whoa. there was... You know, I think just some more knowledge and we had we had come a ways uh, since 1989. And so some people were saying, is this OK? Is this, is it how do we feel about this man dressing as a woman? And is it insensitive to the queer community? So um, just reading a, like the first paragraph of a Glad article and reading also just kind of like a headline in Wikipedia. So I'm, I'm trying to put a huge asterisk that is not an informed conversation I'm having right now. But it sounded like the queer community was okay with Mrs. Doubtfire because he wasn't trying, like you mentioned at the top of this episode, he wasn't trying to be a woman or he wasn't trying to be a drag queen or he wasn't trying to... I guess, uh, you know, I guess I've said it, embody a woman. He was trying to embody a character that his wife would look at as a new person and give, I guess, open opportunity. I'm I'm stumbling with my words, but would not be critical in the same way that she was critical of Daniel. And so because of that, it seemed like overall the queer community, well, I shouldn't say the queer community, the people that wrote these articles in right. you know, response to this question, is Mrs. Doubtfire, like, does Mrs. Doubtfire need to be canceled? Those are my words. But, you know, they seemed okay with it. Well, I think so, because it's not making fun of any trans people. It's not trying to say anything about gender. It's really about what you would do using your resources, which is acting, to see your children. And, and we have dialogue that establishes that his 
huge motivation is to be around with his children. But I thought it was interesting when you were talking because I thought, well, what would be the 2023 version of this? It would be a Finsta where he would create a fake Insta account that is perhaps a different gender so he could follow and interact with his family, right? And we wouldn't probably be as upset or have those questions if somebody, if in that situation, he created an Instagram account that said he was this 68-year-old Irish nanny. Yeah, you shouldn't do that, but it's not like he was trying to catfish them. He was just trying to remain in, in contact with his he kids. Want, he wanted a new start. I mean, I right. think ultimately that's what we're getting to, whether right. it's through Instagram or through some makeup. He wanted a fresh start with his wife and kids, mm-hmm. and he wanted to get back to who they were when they all got together. Because I think, I think through the process of Mrs. Doubtfire, I think that's what she comes to realize. I, you know, like the kids were better. The kids were happier when Mrs. Mm -hmm, Doubtfire, mm -hmm. and when she realizes that when Mrs. Doubtfire was in their lives, everything was improving. She realized we just need that. Right. That energy, that intention in our lives. It doesn't have to come in the form of Mrs. Doubtfire. And the character of Mrs. Doubtfire, independent of gender, but that character by adopting that, Daniel was setting the standards for himself as a father that he should have all along. Yeah, I think that's the scene with where the kids are watching TV and he comes in, right? Daniel yeah. would have never done that because he didn't right. want to be seen as not the cool dad. Right, he wanted to be their buddy. But in the form of Mrs. Doubtfire, he had the confidence to walk in and kind of lay down some rules and he right. was willing to have the kids not like him for that moment because he could see that this is what was good for him in the long run. Yeah. So in some sense, Mrs. Doubtfire was the idyllic parental role. And by establishing it as a role that he was acting, it allowed him kind of the, the permission Mm -hmm. to be that character. So I, I I actually, um, I would be very upset or I wouldn't say upset. I'd be sad if someone felt like Mrs. Doubtfire was in any way commenting on gender. It wasn't that it was just a role and I, I see the, the, the role that that role plays in this film and for Daniel to be one of, of good, not of bad. Yes, I am. Like I said, I'll put those um, articles in the show notes so you guys can read them and make up your own mind. But, but I'm, I'm definitely going to read them. I'm curious. Okay. Okay. Was there any head trauma in this film? Oh, there was my favorite line yeah. of this film. Yeah, you've quoted this a lot since you saw this. It was a run by fruiting. Mrs. Doubtfire throws a lime. I thought it was an orange, but you are correct. You remember correctly, it's a lime into the back of Pierce Brosnan's head. Now, that's probably actually better for both the the narrative and the actor because I used to work with a guy who grew up in Florida and he and his brother would pick oranges for money and apparently when your older brother has a good arm, there's a such thing as an orange fight which is like a snowball fight, but much more painful. I think a lime would be more painful than an orange though, because they, limes are hard. I've, I've mm-hmm, juiced a couple mm-hmm, limes mm-hmm. recently for in cooking and an orange, depending on its ripeness can have like some, some give to yeah, it. Yeah. And a lime can feel like a baseball. You know how a baseball yeah, is yeah. like, it's hard. I think 
this fellow said that it was the the heft, the weight of the orange was the problem. So you're right. Perhaps the hardness of the lime would make up for its lower mass. Either way, probably not a lot of fun. No, that would hurt. So that's our only... Uh, that's the only head trauma okay. that I made note of. How about a smooch? Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. I don't have record of a smooch. I don't remember any any smooching between either Pierce or Robin and Sally. Okay. And then a driving review. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of driving review. Daniel drives a brown 88 Chevrolet Caprice Estate wagon, mm-hmm. which is absolutely a practical car for a father of three children. My question was... In 1988, when they presumably bought it, didn't we have minivans? That seems oh, like a minivan might so. have been in San Francisco. The shorter yeah. wheelbase of a minivan made it, maybe would have made a bit more sense. I know we would have because I learned to drive in a minivan and that would have been in 87. Seven? Yeah. Yeah. Miranda is driving a 93 Volvo 850. So that says that she's very boring, but also she gets paid a whole lot of money because Volvos weren't cheap back then and that's a brand new car uh, in, mm. in the era so she was obviously doing okay and just a nice little cameo i noticed that there was a silver 81 honda cord uh, parked at a stoplight when he's walking in the crosswalk as doubtfire and, and uh, period correct uh, i had a blue 81 honda cord that i learned to drive on and uh, i recognized that those uh, four little tiny headlights anywhere that was nice <laughs> How fun. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. This film, uh, made in 1993, had a budget of $25 million. It made $219 million. Adjusted for today would be like $488 million. Yowza. Yeah. Worldwide, it made 441.2. And so there was talks of... A sequel? Uh, yeah, a sequel. Oh. In fact, Bonnie Hunt actually wrote <gasps> a sequel... And Robin wasn't exactly fond of it. And so there were a bunch of rewrites and it went back and forth and it kind of came up again in the 2000s. And then sadly, when Robin died, then it pretty much got shelved for good. So I just saw a reference today to, in pre-production, Pitch Perfect 4. Oh. What? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know where they would have gone with that because they resolved the narrative question about whether he was going to keep joking or not. It's in the wiki. I can't remember now. I don't... It, yeah, it, I mean, it's referenced in the wiki, but I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I could, do, I could do some research if I'm that curious. It gets a 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics were a little cooler on it, but about there, 70%. And audiences liked it a little bit more at 77%. You did mention that it was a bit long. It is over two hours at two hours, five minutes. It's rated PG-13 and listed as a comedy drama. And it won a ton of awards for makeup, of course. Yeah. Robin won the Golden Globe for Best for Performance by an Actor, and it won Best Motion Picture. It won a People's Choice Award. That Best Picture wasn't an Oscar Best Picture. That was... No, a- Best People's Choice Awards. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, at the Best People's Choice Awards, the film won. And then Robin Pierce and Harvey one for best actor and supporting actor at the American comedy awards. And it got mm-hmm. many, many, many other nominations and 
won a few more. We actually, um, I'll mention, we watched it on Hulu. So if you have a Hulu subscription, you can enjoy Mrs. Doubtfire this month. Give us a, a call or text us at 971-245-4148 to give your guess at what you think this month's theme is. Or you can email me at christy at dodgemediaproductions.com. All of that will be in the show notes, as well as a whole lot of links for this one. And never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, Leave a comment and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 